Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. I want to thank our co-sponsor, the Tower uh, Center Forum at SMU. Uh, it's always a pleasure to work with the team over there, Jim Hollifield, C.M. Brown, Lynn Novak, Carol Wilson. Um, we, we do a lot of things together. They're represented here tonight, uh, today by a lot of their board members, and of course, uh, particularly pleased that uh, Jean, Jean Tower Cox is here. Thank you for, for being with us today. Good afternoon. Thank you, Siom. I'll get back to you. <laughs> how, how one can uh, live up to an introduction like that? There is only uh, one way to go, and that's down in the talk, of course, now. So I'm sure that uh, Siom just made sure that I definitely did not eclipse him uh, this <laughs> afternoon. Well, I want to thank uh, Jim and the World Affairs Council as well as the Tower Center for hosting me and thank um, all of you for coming here, many good friends, and it's uh, wonderful to be here today. I also want to thank uh, uh, Jim and Jessica for uh, choosing the meal that they did uh, for, for the lunch uh, so that I was not put in the position of uh, either having to refuse or uh, eat something that... Um, uh, I found difficult to eat, as had happened uh, to uh, me on one of the trips, uh, one of the fieldwork trips for the book uh, that we did. The, the photograph that Siom referred to in the back of the book is actually from Burma. It's not from Colombia. It's from an opium village where um, he and I went to do research. And uh, this village is um, high up in the hills of, uh, of Burma near the uh, border with China, a place of uh, great beauty, excru excruciating poverty, and great misery. And uh, also, uh, it happens to cultivate poppy and be quite in the in, in the center of um, insurgencies uh, has been for for decades. So Siam and I uh, decided, with the help of a local fixer, to go and talk with the people in the village. And uh, it was very complex logistics. Um, Nonetheless, we get to the village and we uh, interact with the headman and uh, the, the chief and, and the people from the tribe, and things go really, really well. I mean, it not always happens. Often in doing field work for the book, um, we would uh, interview, I would interview drug traffickers, um, cocaleros, people involved in uh, production of illegal drugs, smugglers, insurgents, um, intelligence officers, military people. And, and it's, of course, very sensitive to do these kind of interviews for a variety of reasons. It's sensitive and potentially dangerous for uh, the, the interviewer, but it's equally dangerous and sensitive uh, for the interviewees. So it really matters uh, a lot. The atmospherics and rise in temperature can change how the interview goes and how, how uh, abruptly it ends or how it progresses. So things are going really, really well in this village in Burma. And I'm quite surprised and just that the atmosphere is there. And at some point into uh, about an hour into the, the conversation, uh, they decided to slaughter a cow in my honor. <laughs> now, I really, really did not want that. Uh, not simply... Uh, because of what uh, emerged to be the problem, but also because these people don't have meat consumption for most of um, uh, their life. Maybe they eat uh, meat once a month, and that's, that's, that's a lot, probably even less than that. Excruciating poverty, this is a huge investment. And so I definitely did not want this to happen, and so I'm trying to discourage them from, from doing that, but nonetheless, they, they proceed with it. Now, my visit also coincided, our visit also coincided with the festival, and so part of it is you know, related to the festival. Nonetheless, I'm trying to say, please don't kill the cow. But there they go, and right in front of me, uh, slaughter the neck and, and start gutting the cow. And they take out the eyes and throw them in a soup and offer it to me as the guest of honor. And so there I am looking at the ball, 
and uh, having seen the eyes coming out and thinking, this, this just isn't good. But nonetheless, I also understand that this is really a great honor. So I'm looking at the eyes and looking at them and thinking, how can I get out of this Indiana Jones-like predicament here? Those of you who have seen the Temple of Doom know what I am referring to. So then I get this bright idea of saying, no, no, you know, this really is a tremendous honor. You are giving it back to the chief. You eat it. You have it. No, it goes to you. Alazi is wise to it too, and so we go through you know, a little bit back and forth of who will end up with the eyes and they're back with me. And um, so then I think, well, you know, maybe I should give them to my husband. <laughs> Let him cope with it. After all, you know, he is the bodyguard here, right? So, um, but, you know, frankly, I, I, I guess I love him too much. I just decided not to subject him to the torture and just said, look, I can eat this. You know, it, it's, uh, it's, it's just not consistent with, with my culture. But the mood just soured. You could just see the, the offense and, and immediately the problem that, that rose up. And um, it, you know, there goes the interview. It's the end of it. And we were planning on sleeping in the village. Um, it's now getting late uh, in the evening. Uh, but uh, I decide at that point that things are just too tense, that we cannot sleep there, and that we're going to hike out. Now, uh, leaving out through the hills means hiking for about five, area, uh, five hours in a very difficult jungle terrain where there is pretty much nothing, even as much as a path. You just follow the, you just follow the, the fixer and hope that he knows where he's going. And it's getting dark, and of course neither of us are really prepared for night. I think we have one flashlight between the three of us because we were planning on sleeping in the village. So we start hiking out, and not only do we not have lights, sure enough, a big tropical storm breaks out. So now it's cold because it's high up in the hills. It's pouring wet. It's slippery. And um, at one point uh, in the hike, there's a mudslide that takes me, and I end up in a, a big downhill. And um, uh, I guess I, I got a bit banged on the head. Um, it's just not... Uh, uncommon in my case, but <laughs> in this case a bit more than normally because Siam and, and uh, our guide later told us that they were looking for me for about five minutes before I responded. So now I have to climb up this big hill that delays time. I am bleeding. I am you know, slightly uh, annoyed, very red, very cold. takes another few hours. We get to where we have the car, or supposedly car. So this old 50s um, Japanese car with the wheel on the wrong side of the, of the car, and uh, it can patter along maximum about 30 miles an hour, but since it doesn't have any windows, it gets really cold. It's completely open, you know, now it's like four in the morning, we're drenched wet, and we have another two hours in this uh, vehicle to, to patter along to uh, the town where there is a bigger base that we have where we are uh, sleeping. And uh, so after these two hours, when we finally get there, it's the morning, and I have not only hypothermia, but like pneumonia pretty much. And so within few, within few hours, I'm running very high fever, and essentially I'm just completely collapsed on the floor, cannot, uh, cannot move. And uh, Siom uh, was not one, one of many instances where Siom lived up to uh, not only being the bodyguard, but being extremely competent bodyguard and saving my life because he was going around the village um, begging for hot water as we had no light, no electricity, no hot water and I'm pretty much with 103 uh, fever just totally useless on the floor and begging around for blankets and for hot water and nursing me for several days to uh, back to life uh, but to return to the Indiana Jones aspect of it, um, the, the hut uh, it was not really a hut, it was a, it was a house but it didn't have windows. It has holes in the in the wall, but no glass. It was very cold, and especially with with the fever that I'm running, I'm very cold. So Sion put uh, blankets that he could get and towels over the, the the holes, so it's a little bit warmer in the room. But as a result, there's no light at all. And so he put candles that he collected in the village in a semicircle around the bed and lit them on. And I occasionally woke up from delirium, uh, not only occasionally, but I just remember seeing these candles around me and thinking, I really am Indiana Jones. <laughs> so, honey, thanks for um, 
saving me many times and thanks for the moments when um, you also haven't been saving my life but nonetheless enriching it every minute. So the book, Shooting Up, um, talks about how terrorists, insurgents, paramilitaries, local warlords, belligerents of any sort uh, interact with illegal economies. It focuses a lot on the drug trade, but really talks about a variety of other illegal economies, like the illegal uh, trade in wildlife, illegal logging, smuggling with uh, gas and oil, and various other illicit economies. And it looks at how this has evolved over the past 60 years and how it has influenced military conflict. And, and this is because governments around the world, including in the U.S., have uh, come to the realization that uh, illegal economies feed conflict in, in deep ways. And uh, so they have uh, realized that um, very many belligerent groups greatly increase their physical capabilities and the way they can challenge government by participating illegal, in the illegal drug trade or other illegal economies and decided then that the best way to defeat the belligerents is to suppress the illegal economy. And indeed, this notion that destroying the illegal economy, suppressing it at the sword, is uh, the best way um, to uh, not only suppress the drug trade, for example, but also to defeat belligerents, has been the linchpin of U.S. counter-narcotics policy over the past 40, 50 years. But I argue in the book that this premise is fundamentally flawed that not only does it not accomplish what it promises to, that the siren song of eradication, that it will stop financial flows to belligerents, that it will stop the flows of illicit commodities like drugs to the United States, it's incorrect. The siren song doesn't really matter. That doesn't really uh, pan out. But not just that, it is also deeply counterproductive for uh, the objective of suppressing military conflict. Now, why is it that the logic doesn't pan out. It seems quite intuitive. They make a lot of money on the drug trade, suppress the drug trade, they don't make money, uh, they'll be easy to defeat. Well, first of all, it's very difficult to actually suppress illicit economies, and it's it's pretty much impossible to do so in the context of military uh, conflict. There are very many ways in which belligerent groups can elude, can can, um, escape, uh, evade, efforts to suppress their money flows. Very few groups solely rely on uh, illegal economies for, for financial flows. They frequently engage in various forms of um, fundraising, often things that are legal or at least illegal only in the sense that they fund uh, terrorist activities but don't involve any, any illegal economy. Uh, doing anti-money laundering efforts excruciatingly difficult, if not um, quite impossible. Um, but also, um, they, they essentially learn to tax anything in the areas that they control. So they have very many ways to escape the pressures that one can put on the illegal economy or more broadly on their financing. But a second reason why this, this approach is flawed is because um, it ignores the fact that in many parts of the world, uh, in areas like Burma, Um, uh, like Afghanistan, Colombia, Peru, uh, that I talk about in the book also, large segments of populations and hundreds of thousands to millions of people in particular locales are deeply dependent on the illegal economy for basic livelihood. Without the poppy, without the coca, without illegal logging, these people would face Uh, if not outright starvation, um, essentially famine or at least borderline starvation uh, areas. In fact, in in parts of Burma, that's uh, what the situation is like today. And certainly without the illegal economy, they have pretty much no hope at all of in any way advancing their life or their children's life. And so by uh, suppressing uh, the illegal economy, the government pretty much guarantees that these large segments of the population are fundamentally alienated from the government. And they are ready to embrace any entity like the insurgents, like uh, the Taliban in Afghanistan, like um, the FARC uh, in Colombia, uh, like uh, many of the insurgent groups in Burma, because they at minimum provide um, or, or sponsor uh, this basic livelihood uh, that the populations depend on. And not only that, by the fact that the government decides that the uh, economy is illegal, it removes itself from any ability to regulate 
the economy and provide what any economy needs, assurance of contracts, transparency, uh, minimization of transaction costs. And so these illegal economies provide a unique uh, venue for belligerent groups to uh, present themselves as proto-state entities, to provide for human security for the population, and to provide a variety of other public goods, uh, public services that they would otherwise not be able to provide. And in fact, the illegal economy has great advantages. I mean, if you are a communist guerrilla, you can be promising um, better life in the future once the regime falls, but it's all promise in the future. If you also happen to be a communist guerrilla who can uh, sponsor the drug trade in the village where uh, you operate, you are immediately providing immediate economic benefits uh, and social benefits uh, to the populations that are dependent on them. And one of the effects of this bond is that when the government tries to suppress the illegal economy, it then, um, of course, um, deprives itself of intelligence on the belligerents. Now, the story is a bit more complicated than that, and I get uh, in the book in it and explain a range of case studies, apart from the ones that I mentioned, also Northern Ireland. And people say, well, why Northern Ireland? This is a special, this is a very odd case. It's an outlier. And the reason I bring Northern Ireland is uh, because um, the, 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 the model that I present in the book called the political uh, uh, capital model of illicit economies um, operates with, di with different intensity under different conditions. There are essentially four factors that influence how much political capital, how much support uh, belligerents get from sponsoring illegal economies. The, the most elemental one is the state of the overall economy. Is the country rich or poor, very simplistically? Or more broadly, uh, is the region where the population that the government, that the government and the uh, belligerents buy over, is that rich or poor? And so the Northern Ireland is the perfect case where both the unionists and the uh, IRA groups operated in a rich country where the population wasn't dependent on uh, the drug trade or for the other illegal economies. And so when the, both sets of actors penetrated the drug trade, the population not only did not welcome it, but resented it and pushed them all out of the drug trade. And essentially said, if you don't want us to denounce you to London or to the opponents, you don't peddle drugs to our kids, because there was no benefit uh, to the community. So this is a very different story than in Afghanistan, where much of the Taliban support comes from their sponsorship uh, of poppy. So the first factor is, is the country rich or poor? The second factor is the character of the illicit economy, namely, is it labor-intensive or not? So there is a very big difference between um, uh, economies that, can pro that are labor-intensive and provide employment for hundreds of thousands to millions of people in a particular locale, like cultivation of poppy, and illegal economies that are not labor-intensive, like smuggling, which takes um, hundreds of people uh, at most, for example. So some of the dynamics in Mexico um, are quite different, uh, for example, than in Peru or Colombia or Afghanistan. And the, the less labor-intensive the illicit economy, the smaller the political capital that belligerents derive. The third factor is the presence or absence of um, thuggish traffickers that are separate from the belligerents. And the fourth factor is the one that, from a policymaker's perspective, really is the most interesting one. And it is government policy to the illegal economy. Is it one of eradication and suppression that, as I argue, just uh, pushes the, belliger the population into the hands of the belligerents? Is it one of laissez-faire? Uh, you know, we don't legalize, but we don't really touch it. We don't try to enforce the law, in which case the political capital of the belligerents is weakened, but they still continue deriving important financial benefits. Or is it, uh, in some cases, one of uh, licensing for legal purposes or outright legalization? That might not be the case in, in the drug trade, where legalization um, um, is politically infeasible. Um, but in the case of illegal logging, for example, source of great financial resources as well as political capital for belligerents from Sierra Leone to Liberia to Cambodia, imagining uh, just unmitigated, unregulated logging is quite possible. I am a diehard conservationist. I, I would be very upset if the government took such a policy, but nonetheless, it would be um, certainly quite imaginable in the in international context where the pressure for regulation or prohibition in the case of such economy is very limited. So in a nutshell, 
In a poor country with a labor-intensive illicit economy, where thuggish traffickers are present and separate from the belligerents, the most disastrous policy the government can undertake is one of eradication. Now, this also, unfortunately, has been, uh, as I mentioned, linchpin the, the, uh, of our uh, policy. Now, things are changing. Um, I have been one of the people who has worked with the Obama administration on changing the counter-narcotics policy in Afghanistan. And the policy has indeed shifted in a much better way uh, than it has been the case. I can talk about it in Q&A. But this progress is slow, uh, is very fragile, and uh, the pressures toward eradication, despite the fact that it's not effective and it's counterproductive, are very strong. I am happy to get in the Q&A into talking about um, any of the particular cases or talking also about Mexico, which um, is not uh, one of the cases in the book, but I have done a lot of work on Mexico, so I'm happy to talk about that. Um, Let me just um, say in conclusion that um, in the concluding chapter of the book, I, I offer three sets of recommendations. I talk about what policies toward illicit economies will best harmonize or optimize the government's policy towards suppressing conflict. I make the argument uh, throughout the book and stress it again in in the recommendation section that the government really uh, has virtually no chance of being successful in suppressing the illicit economy, especially a labor-intensive one in the context of conflict. So this idea that there is a dilemma that maybe you go after drugs or you go after insurgents uh, is really a false dilemma because without resolving the military situation first, you will not be able to be effective in addressing um, the illicit economy. I provide a second set of recommendations, which is how do you go about uh, suppressing illicit economies? And I specifically talk in great detail about uh, the drug trade. What uh, what elements do you need to suppress uh, the drug trade uh, or its uh, aspects um, in place? And finally, um, I argue for, um, I provide a third set of recommendations that focus more broadly on uh, policy, on U.S. foreign policy and government policy in general and urge for integrating um, a lot of second and third degree effects uh, into uh, policy consideration that we frequently uh, don't uh, include. So let me give you an example. Uh, There's been a lot of focus on Afghanistan and poppy and a lot of arguments that um, Afghanistan is drowning in poppy and everything that's bad in Afghanistan is because of poppy, hence we need to suppress the poppy. Uh, now, regardless of how you evaluate these, these statements, um, the, most people would agree that uh, poppy is uh, indeed a bad, um, uh, a bad situation, that it needs to be suppressed. Uh, but if we simply suppress poppy in Afghanistan without a change in the global demand for drugs, um, it will shift somewhere else. It can shift to a lot of places in the world, but there's a very good chance it will shift to Pakistan from a U.S. strategic perspective, from the world strategic perspective, uh, from a security perspective, is it better if poppy is in Afghanistan or if it is in um, what used to be until a few days ago, Northwest Frontier Province, now it is um, uh, Khyber Pashtunkhwa, uh, or um, uh, there and in the federally administered tribal areas. I'd make the argument that the Pakistani scenario is far, far more dangerous and worrisome than all the bad things coming from poppy in Afghanistan. Let me give you another example. So we're very focused on suppressing the financial flows to belligerents. And for a while, we have been fairly successful. Um, There was a moment where the FARC, the leftist um, uh, guerrilla group in in Colombia, suffered um, uh, financial shortages as a result of eradication. It didn't last um, but nonetheless, there was a moment where, where they uh, saw their uh, financial income curtailed, and um, there's indication that uh, they tried to dabble with um, buying and reselling enriched uranium, or uranium, I should say, uh, on the global market. Now, I have some skepticism about the validity of this information, but nonetheless, assuming that it is indeed correct, that's what the government of Colombia released, um, is it better from a U.S. security perspective, uh, from a counterterrorism perspective, whether the FARC is peddling with drugs or whether they are peddling with um, enriched uranium? I'm not hesitating for a minute to say that the first is far, far better than the latter alternative. And in fact, this is a very common phenomenon that we focus on one aspect in, without 
really integrating the context that without realizing that by suppressing one illicit economy, we're liable to set up a new one unless we address the underlying root structures. That by suppressing uh, the problematic behavior in one place, we simply displace it to another place that can be even more dangerous than the one where it currently operates. And so integrating all these second and third degree uh, effects and questions into policy analysis is badly needed, especially in areas as vital uh, as uh, U.S. national security um, and um, counterterrorism and counterinsurgency. Thank you very much. I'm happy to take uh, questions. logging is, is a complex area because although China is uh, very much uh, implicated in it, um, China nonetheless to a great degree is still simply the middleman, middleman for Western demand. Now it's also become an extremely robust and important consumer of a um, variety of resources on its own. So uh, it, it's not simply uh, the, the middleman to the U.S. and Western Europe and Canada, it also has very important internal uh, consumption. The dynamics in uh, Brazil are actually quite interesting. Uh, the Latin American uh, logging trade, especially in Brazil, is quite different than uh, Asian uh, logging trade. But in Asia, it's really about timber. And um, China is very much uh, the, the, the source of at least immediate, if not uh, long-term demand. And you have entire forests in Indonesia, uh, Cambodia, Burma these days, um, as well just being slaughtered. In fact, this, this village that I mentioned in Burma, um, if you go beyond, uh, beyond the village, uh, the village is still lying in essentially primary forest, which is very hard to see these days anywhere in the world, but you get maybe 100 kilometers beyond and the hills are just shaved off. There is nothing left and it's all gone to China. In Brazil, a lot of the logging is actually about the land. And although China um, doesn't put in controls for checking whether the, whether the timber has been logged sustainably or not, uh, the, the government of Brazil is equally complicit, in my view, for stimulating uh, lots of the desire to push land into the Amazon. They have been doing it for several decades. They have... Um, uh, learn to put a better veneer, more eco-friendly veneer of it, but I am not persuaded that the substance of the policy uh, really merits a, a, a determination that the government is now acting in a sustainable way. And uh, this pressure for land and internal land competition and, and the politics of land in Brazil um, lead to quite different uh, recommendations than dealing with uh, timber in Asia and in Africa. What we have learned in Asia and Africa is <coughs> that we can adopt several um, processes for sustainable logging. There's a big question mark in my mind whether the processes truly merit the label sustainable because we really will not be able to know uh, for another 50, 60 years. This is how long it takes for tropical hardwoods to mature. And so um, I am often um, thinking that a lot of the sustainable um, uh, label uh, on timber uh, is simply to whitewash our conscience. That said, I urge all of you when you go and buy wood, go and make sure and ask that the Home Depot or wherever you're buying it shows you that it was logged uh, sustainably because there is you know, at least better chance that it's less environmentally destructive than um, just anything that, that's uh, admitting logging without, without a certification. Um, Long-term management really uh, rests with changing our um, consumption behavior, how we uh, relate to nature, how we relate to ourselves, how we incorporate um, truly green behavior um, uh, into our everyday life. And um, it, it takes a lot of determination and change and uh, a lot of um, uh, everyday day-to-day -day behavior to really adopt that. And, um, 
it also requires um, um, addressing um, needs of loggers that participate in it. Uh, but it's actually the, the illegal trade that I am sadly most skeptical that we will be able to uh, change. And beyond simply illegal, that we will really be able to manage the environment in a ways that um, 30, 60, 100 years down the road still has a fraction of the biodiversity that it has today. Yeah. Uh, I've got your book here and I'm looking forward to reading it. I, I've followed this issue for some time and I, I remain very concerned about the corrosive impact of the drug trade on government, police forces, armies, and intelligence services. Uh, I guess I have to be rather pessimistic that we can ever truly win these, these struggles in view of human nature and the ability of these organizations to corrupt and compromise Sure, you're absolutely right. The, the, the legality of any sort, including the illegal drug trade, have a variety of highly undesirable, very bad, pernicious effects from um, the political situation, uh, giving rise to corruption, to deep corruption in the political system. I mean, there usually is a level of corruption to start with. And if you didn't have any corruption, you wouldn't have illegality. But nonetheless, uh, illegal economies like the drug trade, because they are so lucrative, so profitable, tend to deeply um, affect uh, corruption and undermine the political system. Same goes for law enforcement. They also have negative economic um, aspects. On the one hand, they provide um, great financial uh, benefits to millions of people who otherwise would be in far worse conditions. Uh, but on the other hand, they distort macroeconomic um, um, issues, give rise to real estate speculation, inflation, uh, etc. They, they divert uh, uh, labor from uh, illegal uses into illegal uses, etc. Um, nonetheless, um, there is a great difference in how susceptible countries are to being corrupted. Um, take the United States. We are one of the world's biggest consumers of drugs. We have uh, very strong production of methamphetamines. Uh, even though that has declined, and we are one of the world's leading producers of marijuana. We could be producing a lot of other stuff, but we have a lot of competency. But nonetheless, the effects that uh, the drug trade has uh, on our society, on our country, on our political system, and law enforcement is far, far more limited than you would have in places like Mexico. And it is the institutional underdevelopment, the ossification of institutions in these countries, their inability to adapt, and purposeful decisions that they make, like in the case of Mexico, for decades um, tolerating uh, and essentially managing the drug cartels that renders these countries um, so susceptible to the, uh, the great threats. And so in my work on, on drugs, but more broadly, lots of my work, I really urge that at the core of how you address these issues is how you build and strengthen states, and what kind of states do you want, and how you want them to relate to society. And indeed, when I talk about um, uh, anti-crime policies, when I, when I talk, for example, uh, the Department of Justice, with, whom I, uh, with uh, uh, whose uh, representatives I do a lot of work, I frequently argue that when we look abroad, we need to think about crime as a competition between the state and uh, non-state entities over society and state making. And what we want is to move these countries from crime being the threat to the state because it provides competition to state to being how we experience crime. An outrageous nuisance, a headache, no doubt, but nothing on the scale that it can threaten our state or that it can fundamentally change the identity or an organization of our society. And if this then is the, the perspective that one adopts, then it means that suppression, um, training of law enforcement officials, uh, anti procedures to um, move away from, to reduce corruption of justice system and, and uh, uh, criminal justice system, is just one element. But it has a lot of other elements in how state relates to societies including um, socioeconomic benefits, enabling social mobility uh, of uh, populations that are stuck uh, in poverty, marginalization, and illegality. And fundamentally, we have to think about why is it that people uphold laws? 
I mean, one aspect is the threat of law enforcement. If uh, there were no uh, cameras on the roads that catch you how fast you're going, many more people would speed. But the other aspect is how we see laws of helping us in our everyday life. And if we see laws as not only not at all useful, but in fact directly counterproductive, directly hurtful to us, we are liable not to use them and not to uphold them. And so the state needs to change the dynamic in which populations sees law so that the laws can be internalized and embraced. And that's really where we will have succeeded against illegal economies, where we will have succeeded uh, against crime. Now, I don't know if it means that there will be no crime and no illegality, but the, its effects and its prevalence will be far different. Oscar. So there are several issues. Um, uh, Oscar, you um, uh, now have a very good reason to buy the book uh, because uh, in the recommendation section you will see a lot of the issues that you raised uh, addressed. Um, I certainly believe that um, I, I was making the argument that in the context of violent conflict, eradication uh, is not the way to go. I still very much make the argument. I think it's been counterproductive for Colombia in many different ways. Which is not to say that one should never do eradication. And clearly, I was trying to make the argument, obviously not fully successfully, that state needs to change how it relates to its population. That part of how you address crime is also how you engage, uh, how you bring the socioeconomic benefits. How do you change it from the perspective of the farmers that they don't engage in illegality? And clearly, doing rural development is absolutely critical, essential function uh, essential policy that the state needs to uh, adopt. It's very much the case in Colombia. Now, rural development, just like eradication, will not be successful in the context of violent conflict because you simply need to be on the ground. You need to have security for your workers. You need to have security for the farmers. Uh, as long as you cannot get to the ground, your rural development will not be effective. Um, however, I am deeply concerned about a lot of trends in Colombia where the focus has been uh, on the military situation, where uh, there has been significant progress on the military situation, yet great efficiencies, even in areas liberated from the FARC, liberated from the rightist paramilitary groups and their new incarnations, bandas criminales, and the state has been extremely deficient in coming in with socioeconomic development. Lots of the rural development programs have been very meager, very ineffective, very badly structured. And specifically, one policy called zero coca policy pretty much guarantees that they will not be effective. We also have to understand that uh, doing rural development in the context of illegality um, is really dependent on the larger structure 
of uh, the political economic arrangements in the country, which in Colombia um, favors uh, the rich elite, but uh, in deep ways marginalizes and disprivileges much of the population. Uh, land, for example, is taxed very little, and labor is taxed very heavily. So this pretty much guarantees that even when the country can achieve economic growth, it doesn't, generate, uh, it doesn't lead to growth that generates jobs. So the rich are getting richer, but the poor cannot move into legality. So unless the country comes to terms with its identity, with its realization that it simply cannot decide that 50% of the population will live in marginalization, unless it changes these broader structural arrangements, there is only so much rural development will accomplish, certainly in the context of illegality. So bottom line on this, uh, doing rural development or urban development in Mexico, for example, is absolutely key and needs to be part of, um, of state policy. And I would urge uh, that eradication is suspended until legal livelihoods are in place, until uh, the structural reasons uh, for illegality are addressed and legal economies can take off. On drug legalization, I am not a fan. That said, I, I do believe the discussion needs to be on the table, that the debate has become far more sterile, but I frequently find that the debate is equally sterile on the part of those who advocate legalization. So, first of all, legalization really would not be effective um, fundamentally unless it was... Um, widespread phenomenon. So if only one country legalizes, it will have particular local effects, but it will not get into uh, the broader issues. Then legalization of what? Legalization of consumption or legalization of production? If you legalize production, it's not going to be coca cultivated in Colombia or poppy cultivated in Afghanistan. It's going to be cultivated in Kansas and Louisiana and um, California. And Tennessee, and by the way, they already cultivated some illegal stuff, and they'll just cultivate more. And the, the poor areas will be even poorer than they are. Um, so if you realize that, and then you want to legalize production, then you need to guarantee that only certain countries will be given the license. Then why would you legalize consumption? Uh, well, you legalize consumption because you believe that either the money is going into illegal uses, uh, as was uh, the, the objection or as, as was the, uh, the uh, proposition that, uh, that uh, Oscar made, or because uh, it's um, harmful to society. Now, or at least that the existing prohibition is harmful to society. Now, if we uh, legalized, uh, consumption would increase. We don't know how much. So it's illegal, we haven't had experimentation, we don't know how much it would increase. We know that when consumption was legal uh, in the turn of the century, consumption was very, very high with devastating social effects. But we are 100, century, uh, 100 years uh, beyond that, so perhaps we could have a wiser strategy. Uh, in the same way that we manage cigarettes. We could have an information campaign. And so we would see some rise in consumption, but hopefully nothing on the scale that we did before. Nonetheless, a rise in consumption, more specifically rise in addiction, for me is a deeply um, problematic move to have. So then can we think, what else can we do um, in terms of uh, consumption that would mitigate the harmful effects and not give rise to, um, to increases in consumption? Well... I think that we need to really focus on doing far more on prevention and demand that we are doing. In the United States, our policy right now is to throw any user, regardless of whether user or addict, into jail and hopefully for a long time. In jail, they'll become only more addicted to drugs and their consumption will increase. It is a def defective policy that doesn't reduce consumption, increases the strain on our correction facility and on law enforcement. So I think we should, we should move away from that and focus on, on prevention, treatment, and uh, non-prison um, uh, non uh, non policy, at least toward non-violent offenders. As far as uh, if we legalize, the money will not go to um, uh, the bad guys. Again, I'm not at all persuaded that is the case. Look at uh, uh, the uh, uh, Mexican cartels. Large um, income of their money comes from smuggling with cigarettes, for example, and other vices. 
large income comes from taxing legal businesses uh, that operate in the areas they, they exist. If you look at the U.S. crime groups, um, most of the mafias, with the exception of the Mexican cartels, but your traditional mafias from the Italian mafia through the triads, were really not making great income on drugs. They had a very diversified portfolio that, made, that included to a large extent and were built around extortion of legal businesses. So I don't believe that the way you address organized crime is by saying, well, we legalize the illegal commodity that they traffic in. They'll traffic in something else. The focus needs to be how do we change how organized crime relates to society? How do we change how society is dependent on organized crime? How uh, much organized crime feels they can threaten law enforcement or cannot? Our goal should be to move policies uh, toward uh, the relationship like we have in the United States, like we see in Western Europe. Last uh, point I want to make on this. Um, you know, the U.S. has for a long time been one of the dominant consumers of illicit drugs, but we are far from being the, the sole dominant consumer. Uh, countries like Brazil or Argentina have greater per capita uh, uh, consumption of drugs than the United States. Uh, countries like Iran, Pakistan have far higher than the United States. Ru Russia is going through a, a, a great heroin epidemic. China is back up. Um, we need to do far more, we as the U.S. and we as the international community, to focus on demand reduction, treatment, and prevention that we have done. This is um, the, the most important policy intervention uh, we could make. Jim. I'd like to ask you to focus again on Afghanistan because it seems to me that we've sort of met the enemy and it's us. Car the Karzai government, we continue to read how corrupt it is. The number of ministers in his cabinet are corrupt, fueled by, by the drug trade. And so in a sense you're saying we shouldn't be doing the eradication, uh, eradication of the poppy fields and yet that's what's bolstering the corrupt government and you're saying that we need to build civil society. Well, how do we do that when we have the Karzai government? Mm -hmm. Well, um, I, I like the fact a lot, Jim, that you um, raised the fact that uh, the Karzai government is complicit in the drug trade. Because frequently the Afghanistan narrative or arguments you hear is the Taliban is making money and that's sort of the 100% of the discussion. Well, the reality is that um, everyone in Afghanistan is in one way or another in the drug trade. Uh, half of the country's income is poppy, the other half is foreign aid. Think about running a country, the second poorest country in the world, with uh, your budget uh, coming from uh, illegal drug trade and uh, foreign aid. That would not be a pleasant task uh, to have, certainly. As the economy, the legal economy, has been destroyed um, since the 1980s, and even prior to that was rather weak and never very robust, uh, anyone who would claim to have any political influence or economic influence uh, would likely be related uh, to the drug trade. I should actually hasten to add that these days a lot of corruption and a lot of pernicious uh, political development is foreign aid, where that, that also generates lots of rent-seeking, highly bad uh, behavior, and it's a great feeder of corruption, including in the Karzai government, uh, as well as in non-government entities. How do you go in that context about addressing corruption, which we desperately need to do? Um, well, it's very difficult. Uh, I don't think that we'll be successful unless we change the security situation. Now, part of how you change the security situation, of course, is also to build building more legitimate government, including government that's less rapacious and less corrupt, of course. Um, I would make the argument that ultimately what is most important with respect to corruption, apart from international oversight and sort of constant pressure, go at least after the most outrageously uh, corrupt entities, is changing the horizons on which people operate. As long as you believe, as many Afghans do, that the existing order is coming to an end, the future is very bleak down the road, that the moment U.S. withdraws, there is at minimum um, breakup into fiefdoms and worse, outright civil war, it's very hard in this context to encourage people to move away from short-term power maximization and profit maximization and to undertake decisions that reduce corruption. Uh, unless we can 
persuade them that, that there is better future in the long term that will help to get them to it, we will not be successful in reducing corruption. Um, that said, um, out of all the things that most worry me about Afghanistan, it is the state of governance. Um, I think we have the least um, answers how we go about it. Uh, we frequently tend to say that the problem is Karzai and Kabul, and they are very much the problem. Uh, President Karzai is a deeply problematic partner, to say the, to, to use a euphemism. Uh, but our solution of uh, going via local um, um, officials is, uh, in my view, equally inadequate because they are equally corrupt often and equally problematic. Because the whole system, the system's pressures are what I mentioned, short-term power maximization and, sh and short-term uh, profit gain. And unless we change that, then you know, we can remove, we can put a lot of political capital removing this provincial governor or this district governor, uh, but the pressures will be all the same. I also believe that we have to be far more accountable in how we handle aid. And maybe giving less money might be in some circumstances better than giving a lot of money. And um, thinking about how we channel aid. And finally, we greatly perpetuate corruption in Afghanistan by treating the Afghans as someone to be rented. There's this old saying that you cannot buy an Afghan, but you can rent one. And this is exactly what we are doing. We come to a village and say, where is the Taliban? Uh, or what do you want? We want the bridge. Okay, here is the bridge now. Where is the Taliban? Uh, this is not the way to interact with them. And, and they treat us back equally. The Afghans are masters of gaming us out. They see us as marks to con money out of. Because we have very much perpetuated this transactional relationship. And I think it's high time that we step back from it uh, and say, these are the principles that we believe and that we act by. And we want to help you, and we understand that you want to be helped, but we, it won't be this perpetual buy-off that we are in all the time. And if we can move away from this transactional relationship, at least in our relationship, then at least our interaction with them will reduce corruption. Now, you know, Afghanistan is very poor, very corrupt, very underdeveloped, with great institutional de deficiencies. It's a long-term difficult uh, process, and there are no easy answers. Kathy. Yes. Um, I wanted to come back to the U.S. and tack on a little bit to what Oscar was asking, but really to your answer on um, decriminalization, I guess, it would be the word we use for users in this country and uh, allowing them more help rather than sending them to prison. I just heard a presentation about a week or two ago from someone, a uh, specialist in, of all things, the economics of crime. And uh, what I hadn't realized, I knew that our incarceration rate in this country had skyrocketed, mm -hmm. but I didn't know that it was five times what it was in the 60s, and obviously far above any other country in the world. And what I'm understanding is that at least half of that is because of drugs. Mm -hmm. So in your conversations with the Justice Department, are you getting any sense that uh, they could be moving in that direction in terms of decriminalization of at least some drugs? Right. Uh, so there are two separate issues on the table again. Um, decriminalization is frequently technically used to mean that there is no enforcement of the prohibition, or at least that there is no violent punishment. Uh, I don't say violent. There is no, there's no criminal punishment of, of the violation. Uh, you could have treatment programs that include sanctions but don't involve prison, which is the way I would be moving. Um, there's specifically one project that I have in mind. It's called Project Hope. Um, we know that a lot of, a lot of users, uh, I'm not doing well with the mic here, a lot of users um, are um, users that will voluntarily leave uh, using once their social um, conditions change. So most people who are in drugs are not dependent. Now, there will be your high school students that once they get the regular job and need to wake up at 6 a.m. to go to work, they'll stop using. Uh, these people don't have to go to prison. Uh, in fact, when they go to prison, they'll have their lives ruined. There is nothing that more changes forever a person as putting the cuffs on them. This is a quote from the current director of ONDC, the Office of National Drugs and Crime Policy, uh, Chief uh, Kalikowski, which I think is very profound. 
You have a second group of people, which is a much smaller group, but nonetheless, that's the group that consumes most drugs, where people are fundamentally dependent. And often these people um, come from difficult socioeconomic backgrounds and exhibit um, signs of mental illness. We know today that the same triggers toward uh, obesity, bullying, um, indulging in cigarettes, indulging in drugs, alcohol abuse, they all have the same triggers. If we simply put these people in prison, they're also not going to leave their dependency. In fact, a lot of the, the underlying triggers will only be reinforced and they'll be only stuck with greater dependency. There is a third group of people, which are either users or pushers or, or traffickers, which are also highly violent. For them, I have absolutely no uh, problem at all. In fact, I would encourage that prison is, is the way to go. So then what do you do with these two other groups of people, the ones that are dependent but are not violent, and the casual users? Well, for the casual users, uh, uh, I would say, uh, quick, very short uh, sanctions, like going to uh, drug courts, demanding uh, uh, public service, for example, or even something like spending one night, one day uh, uh, in the county jail without it necessarily going to record, and demanding that they be treated uh, or that they will be tested. These people will, with very small amount of, of, of pressure, leave uh, use. Unfortunately, our policy right now is to send them to prison, often for 20 years, 30 years onwards. For the people who are seriously dependent, again, then the treatment must mean some sort of social appropriate, but it also needs to include um, access to mental health, access to counseling, and frequently these people will have to go to treatment for many times. We know that people who are seriously dependent, if they go through one course, they're likely to relapse. Frequently three, four treatments are necessary before um, they will be able to break dependency or at least reduce dependency. And then those who never can, then you should get into some of the harm reduction approaches. How do you mitigate spread of, of infectious diseases such as HIV, AIDS, uh, hepatitis, um, etc.? And uh, on, on the prison uh, uh, situation, not only do we uh, incarcerate uh, more people than any country or certainly any, any Western country, uh, absolutely, but we also incarcerate more than anyone per capita, and at least half of that is uh, related to drug offenses. It's an enormous strain on law enforcement. Uh, it's an enormous strain on our correctional facilities. So I, I think there is a lot of fertile ground uh, these days to, to move away from that and see what other uh, sanctioning and treatment mechanisms could be uh, found uh, that don't involve um, incarceration. I think there's great receptivity. And part of it is stimulated by the economic crisis because states cannot afford to pay for prison. And Texas is actually a leader. In uh, you know, Texas, one of the greatest penalties uh, for lots of offenses, including drugs, and uh, at least um, uh, at, at the local level, there has been a lot of changes. And at the state level, to move away from incarceration, frankly, because Texas cannot afford it any longer. I want to be sure that we have time for you to sign the books that everyone's going to purchase. Barry, last, last, last question. question. Okay, I'll try to make it not too long. Every year in Singapore, for a couple of weeks, you can't mm -hmm. see across the street, at least since I first lived there in 1968, and it's been going on for decades. Uh, the reason is, in Indonesia, they start clearing, illegally clearing ground. Mm -hmm. uh, to get the plantations. And this is all illegal. It's been happening for 50 plus years. What it seems to me is that in all of these activities, there is a value chain. And the value chain sometimes leads to legitimacy. In other words, your local pharmacist is selling you illegal drugs that were robbed off of a truck. Mm -hmm. But it's been whitewashed, and then he sees himself as making a little extra profit. So he has an incentive. So at some place along these value chains, there must be an intervention spot where you can interrupt and make it not so, you know, take away the incentives in the value chain for the illegal activity to continue. Blood diamonds is another thing, you know, and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the attempts made to, to find a way so that that chain of events that is providing profit at each point of the way is interrupted. 
and you're absolutely right, it's actually a great ending because you touched on what is the subject of my next book that I'm working on that looks at how to manage various illicit economies. And one of the arguments I am making is that essentially the structure of the illicit economy gives you some optimal points for greater, greatest policy effectiveness. This varies a lot. In the case of nuclear smuggling to terrorist groups, your optimal policy point intervention is at the supply moment. Try to make sure that um, low or high energy uranium doesn't leave uh, authorized hands. In the case of the trade in wildlife, like in the case of drugs, for example, your optimal policy intervention is on the demand side. How do you reduce the demand side? And then the, the strategies matter a lot. But the second part, apart from the structure of the economy, the second thing that matters a lot is the social context. How uh, the economy, the illegal economy, is socioeconomically embedded in the particular locale where you are trying to influence it. And having that understanding then will allow for policy effectiveness that is effective at the local level and hopefully also effective um, um, at the global level. So without you know, greater detail, talking more specific um, place, um, I'll leave it at that, saying that the one economy that I am um, actually most pessimistic about um, is what we started, which is the timber trade. But I think we can um, move, we can suppress the illegality, but I am not persuaded that our legal practices give very great hope that uh, Indonesia won't be just flatland with grassland and, and, and cattle, that uh, uh, Northwest United States won't end up being that way unless we fundamentally change our consumption practices. And here it is far harder than in the case of even wildlife trade than in the case of diamonds. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Wanda, thank, you. <laughs> thank you very much. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.